0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is relevant to healthcare professionals, and I think the general public will find this very useful as well, and you'll find out soon enough why that is. Today's guest is Dr. Wanda Pipitanical. Dr. Pipitanicol is the director of the Division of Immunology Research at Boston Children's Hospital and S. Jean Emmons Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Pipitanicol has spent her career investigating various aspects of asthma with a major focus on the role of the environment and how it relates to morbidity. With over 300 peer-reviewed publications, Dr. Pipitanicol is truly one of the world's experts on childhood asthma. She contributes so much more to our specialty and currently also serves on the board of directors for both the American Board of Allergy and Immunology and the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. With that, Dr. Pipitanical, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule for joining us and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Dave, for having me.
0: Now, I think this is going to be a great conversation. I, I've been, I've I mentioned this to you in the past, but I've been wanting to have you as a guest on the podcast for, for a long time, and I think this is the perfect timing uh, to to discuss what we're going to talk about today. And to start, I always like to pick the brains of our guests who have focused their career on research. So to, to get things kind of, kind of kicked off here, do you mind sharing your origin story with us uh, in regards to you know what got you interested in research in the first place, what's kept you interested throughout your career, and anything else you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, no, that's always a great question. So I was uh, born into allergy almost. My mother was an allergist in private practice in St. Louis. And so our fa- I always knew my mother was an allergist and I, we had lots of allergies and asthma in our family. So ever since I was a young child, I always wanted to be a doctor and I always made, wanted to make a difference in people who suffer from these conditions but i don't know if i knew right away that i was going to do research right away until i was maybe more of a like as i started as a fellow probably right. i knew i wanted to do pediatrics i loved the kids when i was in medical school and residency and then i really got excited about allergy and i i guess i that as a fellow, I had an amazing mentor who was past president of the Academy, Bob Wood. And we just clicked. We got projects done together. We really started, uh, was it was a very, very productive fellowship. And then I, I think it just it just gave me the research bug. When when I started on faculty like 23 years ago at Harvard, I was really mo- hired mostly as a clinician, but I really I really just still had, I wanted to make a bigger impact and uh, I love seeing the patients. I still do. I still love seeing the patients, but I think, I think the background from being as a fellow and then really just building on that focus has really kept me, uh, kept me in the, in the area of research. And it's also something that I know my mom, who's actually my late mom, she actually passed when I was a fellow, but she always was a role model and really was excited and hope hope that I could make a real big impact through, through investigation and through moving the field. So I guess that's, what's kept me going all this decades of time, Dave. No, that, that's great. And, you know, the the theme
0: of mentorship has come up from so many of our guests, and I couldn't agree more how that kind of stokes the initial flames. Um, at this point in your career, you're, you're you know over two decades in at your institution. How, how much time do you spend seeing patients in versus how much time do you spend on research?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I have formal clinic one half day a week because most of my time now is spent on research and administration and running a major program. But my research is not wet lab, basic science. It's really Mm community-based working with families. So I would say dealing with families and that clinical aspect is really throughout most of my day. So, so it's not, it's the formal clinic is just a half day a week. I also have a few weeks of call where I work with the fellows who are on the inpatient service. And then during the clinic too, I'm also mentoring the fellows, but, but that's how my time is split.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you have plenty of spare time given uh, <laughs> how little that you do. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, asthma is such a common condition, yet it's one that often goes underdiagnosed and undertreated. Um, in your experience, what are some of the common reasons why children in particular may not receive the proper diagnosis in the first place or current evidence-based treatment?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think that sometimes physicians and families are really hesitant on labeling their child as having asthma particularly when they're younger or just developing it's like oh maybe it's wheezing maybe it's cough air, and asthma maybe it's something else we don't know and so there's there's sometimes resistance to say oh no my child has asthma this kind of kind of condition that's that's stuck with them and so also people are trying to figure out what kind of works what's what how the symptoms are with the child. And so I I think that there often is, is, is a hesitation. In addition, it's just hard for kids in general to do a lot of the diagnostic tests. There's not a great test. I always wish there was a test. You could just get a blood test or something or do some kind of procedure and know exactly this patient has asthma. But a, a lot of the tools we have, including like the lung function testing and the, FENO testing and those kinds of things are hard to do in the young kids. They really aren't able to or coordinated enough to really give a good effort or uh, get the, the proper airflow in to, to help us understand whether their breathing is reversible or their uh, their lung function changes with albuterol to help make the proper diagnosis. So I guess that would be a couple of the key things and then current evidence based treatment is just often a challenge just in everybody being educated and on the same page you know i think mm. things have changed so much and it's so complicated with all the different therapies and i feel like we've gotten so many new therapies all at once that it's really it's really hard to keep up at times even i'm always and this is a field that I live and breathe, but I'm, I'm always seeing there's something new all the time. So I guess that would be some common reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. No. Um, yeah, I've, I've been struck in recent years at our, our big professional annual meetings, how we have sessions for the experts, right? We are we are the asthma specialists, um, and yet we have sessions to help us navigate the biologics and new treatment approaches just to, uh, to better understand how to use them and implement them into the practice. And along those lines, asthma is such a complex, heterogeneous condition, both how it presents and even in response to therapy. So what advice do you offer clinicians? I know we could probably spend hours talking about this, but any overarching themes as regarding approach to management Uh, is it you know one size fits all or do you think we can truly tailor therapy to each individual
1: yeah the landscape has really changed over recent years in the old days we used to well we didn't have so many therapies so it was like you have asthma and this is this is what we do and kind of go in a stepwise fashion and now we've realized there's so many different phenotypes and endotypes and that it's really quite a heterogeneous disease and so We're trying to understand more even specific biomarkers or characteristics that could help predict who will respond to certain types of therapies. There are so many different therapies out there now and really individualized therapy or precision-based therapy is kind of the new buzzword that we've been all trying to wrap our heads around and trying to take the patient and look at all the different characteristics and then kind of get a sense, all right, which... Which therapy would would make the most sense? Therapy or therapies would really help control this this patient's asthma and also some of the other conditions. We as allergists see a lot of conditions that kind of fall on the same pathway. And so some of the therapies out really can kill several birds with one stone by targeting allergic pathways, type 2 inflammation, a lot of those buzzwords that are important in asthma, but also important in other conditions as well.
0: Yeah, I I like that you mentioned that. And as we're going to talk about, you know, for the rest of the podcast, it's really not just the what's happening inside the person's body, but it's the holistic approach of what a, you know, comorbid conditions and environment and things like that. And I guess before we transition to the, the focus of today's topic on air quality and the overall impact on our health, can you just briefly explain why people with asthma in particular are susceptible, uh, to the elements found in the air that we breathe and what happens physiologically inside their airways and bodies that is different from somebody who may not have asthma.
1: Yeah. So asthma, patients who have asthma have really twitchy airways. And one of the definitions of asthma is this kind of bronchoconstriction that is often triggered. It is reversible. Often you, if you give a bronchodilator or something, you can open up their airways again, but they they exacerbate and they, they get uh, the air quality is bad. Their their lung function declines, their airways bronchoconstrict and all those things that we know are triggered from, especially if they have allergic asthma or any type of asthma that triggers this cascade of cytokine responses and mass cell activation and things that just cause patients to have difficulty breathing. While typically many of the normal patients who don't have asthma can be around these triggers and they're maybe not allergic or they're just not susceptible and they have no problems at all. There are some areas or the, when the level of air quality gets so bad, which we can talk I know we're going to talk about later, particularly with the wildfires, mm-hmm. that everybody has trouble, like they just can't breathe at all, because the air quality is so bad. But patients with asthma have really twitchy airways, and they, they really have much more difficulty around these triggers for their asthma. At
0: this point, I think it would be very helpful to just take a moment and have you provide some basic definitions that will set the stage for the remainder of our discussion and make sure we're all sort of on the same page. So, what are the main elements that contribute to poor air quality outside the home?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, yeah, we do kind of look at both indoor air quality and outdoor, and I, I guess I would say outdoor po- pollution. We know affects everyone, and the pollution content in our environment has gotten much worse. There's also allergens and pollens, particularly at certain times of the year. And they interact often. Many of the different uh, pollens and outdoor allergens interact with pollutants and then make make things even worse. There's also ozone. Mm-hmm. There's particulate matter. There is... Nitrogen dioxide, which comes from traffic, and that all these things kind of interact and just make the air quality terrible and there's also as as I know a buzzword as we're talking about over the decades of climate change and war global warming and things like that that can maybe even have a longer pollen season, longer interactions with air pollutants and really make The air quality even worse and worse.
0: So it's these, you know, and uh, really stupid question, but just to make sure we're clear for everybody: can we see these things with our own eyes, or uh, are there other ways
1: to measure them? Yeah, well, it depends. So I I think you've seen many of the pictures that are in the newspaper now when the air quality is really bad. You see this Mm -hmm. like haze in the air, and you know that that's that's not great. But there can be times too where you. Don't necessarily see it, and there's still plenty of nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter, which is less than two and a half microns, which you you wouldn't be able to see with the eye. Those those can be deposited in the airways, and so many of the particles and the allergens you can't necessarily see. Now, some of the pollens and things during the spring season, when you go and you see all that film on your car, you know those you can definitely see, in that. That is so. It's a, it's a mix. Some some you can see, and some some you can. Sometimes the air quality is bad, and you can't really tell.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you have mentioned this particulate matter a couple of times now. So the abbreviation of uh, PM two point five. Can you tell us what that refers to and why it's important for all of us to understand?
1: Yeah. So that's just the the particles are smaller than two and a half microns, and that's a nice size to kind of get deposited into our airways and cause mm-hmm. all kind of havoc. So, so that, that's one that we, we definitely know is, is related this particular matter to, to difficulty breathing and uh, particularly in susceptible patients. And we always see kind of clear dose response relationships between the level of PM 2.5 and asthma morbidity or a lot of some of the other chronic lung diseases where it might cause them to exacerbate.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you've discussed some of the uh, elements in the outdoor air that can contribute to poor air quality. And you've already touched upon how you spent a lot of your career out in the community, uh, really investigating the impact environmental factors inside homes and schools. So what are the main elements indoors in those environments that can impact air quality?
1: Yeah, there, there are a lot of similar things from the outdoor that also kind of can penetrate into the mm-hmm. indoor we definitely know, particularly in patients who are allergic and susceptible to allergens, that different types of dust mite and pet allergens and pest allergens, including a lot of you know that I've done a lot of work in mouse allergen and cockroach allergen, particularly in urban environments. But we, we see plenty of mice in in suburban environments as well. And so a lot of those... Definitely can contribute to triggers of for exacerbations. Also, mold is a common indoor problem, and then pollution as well. Pollution sometimes there's direct pollution indoors from furnaces and uh, gases and things like that. But then a lot of them also are from outdoor that penetrate insides, particularly if you live in an area where there's a lot of traffic and things, those those can contribute to poor uh, indoor quality. And we've also found that there are direct exposures, like in schools, they they might have direct mice and cockroach problems and, of course, dust mite and things like that. But also people track different allergenic exposures All over. We find allergens in hospitals and public places, even in operating rooms and things that people track from their clothes. And you can also bring allergens and exposures in your clothes from home into school and vice versa. So those things are also contributors to poor indoor air quality
0: and in your uh throughout your career i'm sure you've been inside many different types of dwellings both public and, and private um what's the largest number of mice you've seen with your own eyes at one time
1: uh, usually so they they tend to be <clears throat> more nighttime critters so we usually just see the evidence uh, of the mice and uh so we'll see a lot of droppings and and things like that so yeah fortunately I haven't personally seen a lot of live mice running around. Although I do have patients in our studies that do complain and say, we're seeing them; they're, they're running around. So usually you might just see a few, but we often see the droppings and the Mm -hmm. evidence that they're there. And then when we get the allergen levels, when we collect the dust samples, we see that they're super sky high as well. But most of the, big public areas, including even, and, and work areas where there's cafeterias and lots of food and things. There's always, there are always mice. It's always a challenge. It's just, it's a, it's a very common pest.
0: Sure. Um, okay. I have to ask because I, I've seen the headlines everywhere. that are proclaiming, they're practically shouting at us that gas stoves are releasing more pollution into the air than even secondhand smoke. Uh, so can you help us set the record straight? Do we all need to get rid of our gas stoves immediately? Or is this just another example of sort of exaggerated emotional responses and, and misreading the evidence?
1: Yeah, I would say it's more of like an example of exaggerated responses and misreading the evidence. So I've looked at that Main study that the media picked up, not in a great journal, not really well done, and just kind of saw some kind of loose associations. Mm-hmm. And we do know that high NO2 levels, which is a marker of traffic, and there is some with gas stoves, but if you turn on, which all gas stoves have, you turn on that air filter the vent, then the reality is you are not getting much NO2 exposure from the gas stoves. I wouldn't call that as the main source. Really, the biggest source of NO2, which can be problematic, is really the traffic and emissions from the outdoors that comes in. And it's definitely not releasing more pollution than secondhand smoke. That is an exaggerated response
0: okay well i appreciate your uh, your perspective on that <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah we live on a
0: relatively large planet um and but most of us spend the majority of our time really in a relatively small area all things considered uh, are there differences in air quality based upon geography and if so what are some of the factors that may contribute to these uh, differences that we see
1: well definitely i think that if you live out in the farm area where there's a car that comes by every once in a blue moon your air quality, at least from a pollution standpoint, is going to be a lot lower than living right in downtown Manhattan where there's taxicabs and cars driving all the time. So I, I definitely think, and there are certain areas probably in, in certain countries like India and China, where you kind of see them wearing masks all the time because their air quality is always in kind of the toxic range. So definitely I, w- I would say that There is uh, a differences based on geography and it can be related to many factors. I, I think one of them is large populations where there's a lot of people and traffic and that the carbon footprint of what we have with emissions and pollution in certain areas where there's more smoke and other types of exposure. Clearly, the wildfires by geography make a difference. And then certain areas, depending on where you are, where there's a, a lot of challenges with pollens and other allergen mm-hmm. exposures as well. So I think that all those, they kind of interact together in kind of what we call maybe like the exposome, where that can really affect the air quality. And so, so that may contribute to some of the differences as well. And we've definitely seen differences between urban and suburban areas in, mm-hmm. in many of our research projects.
0: Sure. So far, we've talked mostly about asthma and how uh, that can be impacted by air quality, but what are some other health conditions that may make people more susceptible to these small particulates that you talked about in pollution and things like that?
1: Yeah, I think any of these things that can get deposited into the airway, both upper and lower airway can cause problems. So there's asthma, but there's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, (laughs) <laughs> there's emphysema there are patients who have rhinitis and both allergic and non-allergic and so i i think poor air quality can just affect lots of aspects in in how we breathe so any particles that can deposit into the airway will will make it, all these conditions worse even probably like interstitial lung disease and some of the other chronic lung conditions i'm sure it's it's much more difficult
0: to mm-hmm. What happens with chronic exposure to poor air quality over time, and and some of the elements that you mentioned? Can this impact our health even if we don't have Mm -hmm. symptoms that are present? So, is there some like you know long-term damage or changes that occur inside our bodies that uh, either your research or (coughs) research of others have found?
1: Yeah, I think that there is evidence. There is even evidence on smoke exposure and pollutant exposure in future generations, right? Mm. So we've seen things where they start quizzing or finding out data from grandparents and parents, and that even if they've moved into different areas, but that they've had exposure while they're pregnant or even in utero, those kinds of things can impact health. And, and clearly, babies in utero are not experiencing any symptoms. So I think there's a lot still to be done in the area of research. That's what's always so fun about research is we've learned so much in recent years, but there's always so much more to investigate and to understand. And there's definitely evidence that it's both acute and chronic exposure can cause underlying inflammation, really rev up certain processes in the airways that can can eventually make things irreversible as well, as far as, as lung conditions. And we think of asthma as that it's kind of bronchodilator reversibility in the airway, but you keep getting these exacerbations or you keep having chronic exposure that then then the lung function and quality of how you can breathe really declines. So, so there are these elements. And I think even without the symptoms, exacerbations, frequent exacerbations clearly is a predictor of further lung function decline. But I think that often sometimes there's inflammation that happens even if you don't have symptoms. And often sometimes people actually get used to feeling the way they do. And sometimes don't even, they, they lose perception. It would be, it is amazing. Sometimes you see people walking around with lung function levels so low and they think that they're fine. Mm,
0: mm -hmm. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, What about, you know, you take somebody who doesn't have asthma um, can just exposure to pollution in small particulates cause them to develop asthma or other chronic respiratory conditions? Like is, is the environment, that does it have that strong of an impact on disease development?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, th- well, definitely there's evidence of that. I and mean, particularly like workers that are were around September 11 when they had the World Trade Centers. And we're still seeing, that was 20 years ago, you're still seeing people with chronic conditions related to acute exposures or exposure to pollution and particulates that were fine before. And uh, definitely I would imagine uh, these wildfires could in certain individuals trigger long-term health effects. So it's also important in in the research arena to have kind of long-term follow-up, especially when there are events that cause people to have really high levels of Exposure to poor air
0: and if you have somebody let's say there's a child with asthma who lives near major highways or high levels of pollution, but then they move to a different location where their air quality is significantly improved. Does their asthma magically go away, or is this something that they are then you know have a, as a chronic condition based upon those earlier exposures
1: yeah that's a good that's a good question. I think it really depends there's probably variation and response. There's acute exposure where you have these acute high levels and then it triggers an asthma attack or an exacerbation. And then there's this chronic exposure. And we have evidence that both can contribute to morbidity and uh, related to asthma and, and chronic breathing problems. So I think that some of the acute symptoms may get better if you move to a different location with better air quality, but that there's already some underlying chronic inflammation that may not necessarily go away. And, and we do see that some of the studies, we, I'll look at exposures that ch- children had when they were young, young kids and now that they're adults and you can kind of see, still see differences but um, it's still worth trying to avoid these exposures as much as possible. It's not so easy to just move as well or change where a school is. We, we've had studies that show where you live and go to school and home. And the farther away you are from traffic, the better your asthma is. And so, so these are challenging issues and problems to deal with that we can't have everybody live out in the
0: farm with fresh air all the time. So. <laughs> sure, uh, you, you've mentioned the wildfires a couple of times, and you know, there's uh, unfortunately this has been a recurrent problem, especially yeah. in recent years. It's become more more prevalent. Um, in prior years, it was you know a lot of uh, the folks living in the United States, particularly on the West Coast, and now many of us are actually impacted by uh, wildfires in Canada, uh, and yeah. you know, on the East Coast, and then uh, in the Midwest, and you know, I. I Unfortunately, I think this is something we're going to have to, you know, deal with for a long time, and, and from different areas. So, can you talk about what makes the smoke from wildfires particularly problematic? And is this just a problem for people with those underlying health conditions that you mentioned before? Is this really a problem for all of us?
1: Well, especially since the wildfires have affected more the East Coast, where where I'm sitting, I, I've now prescribed to this little app that tells me. Uh, the air quality each day, and there are different zones. So the, the green zone, which is that when the air quality index is less than 50, that means for most people, it's safe to breathe, including patients with asthma. And then if it gets above 50 to about 100, then they kind of say that patients who might be more susceptible may have problems. So maybe some more sensitive groups. And then when it gets to above 100 to like 150, they really say that you sensitive groups really should stay inside people with asthma and things. And maybe the rest of the population might be fine. But then once you get up above 151, then the air is unhealthy for everyone. And above 200, like you guys need to stay inside and 300 and above 300 is, is hazardous. So you really need to, so they're, are kind of these air quality indexes. And so clearly they're, they're the patients who have asthma or other chronic lung diseases need to be more careful when it's even in the yellow and, and orange zones.
0: What do you recommend when um, we do receive an air quality alert in our own area? Well, first, are there an, any specific apps or other sources of information that you recommend people kind of follow on a daily basis? And then the follow-up question is, what precautions should we take? Um, or is it you know only relevant during certain times of the day? Or what else should we be doing to keep ourselves safe?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the EPA has pretty reliable stuff. You can get an alert that gets sent to your email that says what the air quality you put in your your zip code and things like that and that can kind of highlight gives you a general idea. Uh, there's there's several that are available, but I think the EPA tries to tries to have accurate information. And uh, so I think I think when I just kind of follow their guidelines, I fortunately don't have asthma. I do have really bad allergies, but even when it starts getting into the yellow or orange area, I, I tell the kids maybe Today's not a day to spend six hours outside, and it's unfortunate. But and especially when when we get a, a, a alert zone that it's in above one hundred and fifty, then really th- that's unhealthy for everybody. And and so it's best to stay inside. And even think about what, remember those good old masks from the COVID mm. era. We we can bring those back out again. The the and ninety fives, or at least some mass, might be uh, of utility in helping reduce the exposure.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, does um, I, I would assume keeping the windows closed would be helpful, and does air conditioning help as well? And I guess the other question is, does that contribute to make things worse in some way?
1: Yeah, that's a, those are great questions. When we when we think about the pollen season, we always tell families to come inside don't keep the windows open and turn on the air because we know that that does help with allergens and also can help the reduce the humidity as we know dust mites and a lot of allergens really thrive in humid areas including mold and things so the air conditioning can help with all of those things so and it especially it seems like the air quality can get and we've got the wildfires, but then also this heat, and that just makes the humidity index and the air quality really bad. So I think overall, being inside and turning on the air probably will make things more comfortable, whether the air conditioning emits some type of other chemicals that make things worse. I don't, I don't know if we really know, but I, I think over all the good outweighs the bad, is staying in to, inside and closing the... Closing the doors, not letting the outdoor air come in and turning on the air, particularly if it's like the weather it is now. I don't know what it's like in Ohio, but in Boston, it's almost unbearable to sit in here without the air conditioner on.
0: No, it was it was pretty soupy and and humid here uh, this (laughs) week until we had some some rain come through. (laughs) Yeah and you know actually at, at the time of this recording uh, for our listeners it's it's early July we just we just celebrated the 4th of July but um I just read that I think for like 3 days in a row we've had the highest average global temperature um in you know recorded human history and you mentioned the heat and we talked you, you touched upon climate change earlier and it has become so politicized but the evidence really clearly demonstrates that we're seeing earlier and extended pollen seasons with higher levels that absolutely has impacted the millions of people living with allergic rhinitis and asthma. But what does the evidence show in regards to how climate change has impacted air quality and environmental irritants? Do we have any data on that?
1: You know, I, I think that's an interesting question. I, I see so much out there about climate change, but I haven't seen a lot of solid funded research being done with a lot of data Mm-hmm. and i don't know why i don't i don't know if it's it's harder to get investigators to get funded in this area maybe there's not enough expertise in it but we definitely know we've seen evidence of the extended pollen seasons and that patients are getting worse because of the extended pollen seasons and the interactions with pollution we've definitely seen the climate change of course that makes the weather warm and humidity and then the fires and then pollutants and irritants. So I think we know that, but I haven't seen a lot of good original research articles. And I would like to see more of those where they're doing like rigorous kinds of studies and really showing maybe they, they might be difficult because they usually affect so many areas. I'm trying to think of the study I would design that could give more objective data Dr.
0: Pipitanical, you've offered us tremendous insight into the complex and pervasive problems uh, that the air we breathe can have on our health. What advice do you have for healthcare professionals who are listening regarding how they can assess and help individual patients who are impacted by these issues? So what what can they do, practically speaking, in the office setting when they have that patient in front of them?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think a lot of it is is listening to the patient. We always go back to our bread and butter, right, of the basic history and trying to understand what may be some of the environmental factors or other factors that is causing them to have difficulty, whether they have symptoms and and things like that. So getting a great history. And then if there's time, depending on where you're at, I I guess we as allergists, we usually always, if, if the child is able to, or the patient's old enough to get lung function testing, and if you're able to in your clinic to get FUNO, to think about Getting some of the biomarkers that can trigger or to help discern what type of disease they may have, whether it's type two inflammatory disease or if it's non-type two. Those are some buzzwords that we use, and getting allergy testing or IgE and and uh, CBC with diff to see if they can eosinophils. These are some basic things to kind of understand if, if the patient is having. Trouble with the air that they breathe, and then if if it's really triggered by allergic kind of triggers or pollution, and and whether it's kind of type two inflammatory processes that can help guide what therapies we decide to use.
0: Do you feel that you know we should be making uh, some standardized questions that we ask every patient uh, to assess both their indoor and outdoor air quality? And if so, what are some examples that you can offer?
1: Yeah, I think like we had mentioned some is trying to avoid as much as possible. If the air quality is bad, you really need to stay inside, turn on the air condition, close the windows. I find too, if patients have to go outside, as soon as they come in, take a shower, wash out mm-hmm. all the potential particles and pollens and things. And if they want to use an air purifier, sometimes I do mention the, the type of air purifier purifier that I usually recommend is the HEPA filters. So if it says HEPA on it, it doesn't need to be the most fancy or expensive equipment, but a HEPA, which is uh, a high efficiency particulate air filter can be helpful, especially if you use it in the room. I know when the air quality was, was bad, I pulled ours out from studies and started putting them around the house and it can it can definitely help reduce some of the problems associated with air quality. And then keeping the humidity low too, which I feel is so difficult today is a really soupy day in July. And and if there's any way you can try to reduce the humidity because that that really can make the air quality a lot worse.
0: Okay. Yeah. So those are great practical tips that, that I think anybody uh, can sort of implement inside their own home whenever they have uh, access to those sorts of things. Well, you know, as we wrap up, things up here, um, you kind of touched upon this a little bit with the climate change uh, conversation we had, but you, last question I have for you is what do you think are the major research gaps in areas that really haven't been addressed regarding air quality and asthma in particular?
1: Well, yeah, that's a great question. I mentioned that I, I would like to see more solid original articles in, in climate change as opposed to call for action and we need to do this and we need to do that. I, I would like to see more of that. Uh, I would like to see a lot of uh, more work in, in the community and understanding exposures, the exposome or multiple exposures and how they interact on health and and things that we can do about it. I think that's been Uh, always a challenge. There's been a lot of focus in the home. I was able to get into the schools prior to the pandemic and do a lot of work in the schools, but there's so many different areas that could potentially be areas of intervention, personalized monitoring and understanding from a personalized standpoint, maybe novel technology on, on maybe through our phone or apps where we can kind of see what our exposures are and, and ways to reduce the exposures are some, some areas I think that would be of benefit to have funding go towards. And another area that I've been trying to expand on in the area with, with the schools and the homes is we know a lot about the allergens and a little bit on, on pollutants, but actually how they interact with viruses. As we know with the pandemic, there was such a concern with HEPA filters and how to, can we reduce, reduce spread of the coronavirus or COVID and maybe kind of understanding if any of these interventions not only reduce exposures, but reduce exposure to the interaction with, with viruses, I think, I think would be an important, important next step.
0: So just a few things that you feel we need to address then.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's always tons to do. There's always a lot to learn and it, it's really been an exciting journey. Oh, really I think that's cool. to great. understand all these. No, yeah, the the technology has been amazing. And new, new, new technology and interventions and monitoring and, and understanding can, can be really, really key.
0: Well, Dr. Pipotanical, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. I think this was a, a great conversation, lots of good information, uh, and uh, it's been very, very insightful. Before we depart, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, well, just uh, say, stay safe, everybody, and try to you know keep advocating for improvements in the environment that we live. It affects everybody and really uh, has been a pleasure talking about these really key issues. Well, thank you again.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.